Well, let's turn to the book of Nehemiah one more time. Nehemiah chapter 13. As we conclude our study of this book. These uh, events that are recorded in Nehemiah chapter 13, it wouldn't look like it if you just take your Bible in your hand and do like this, but they're the last events that are recorded in Old Testament history. Uh, your Old Testament, the way it's laid out in your English Bible, isn't uh, provided to us in a chronological way. Uh, after you finish uh, Nehemiah and Esther, you go on into Job and Psalms and Proverbs, that uh, poetry and wisdom literature, and then into the prophets. And there's a bunch of those before you get to the end. Uh, but those prophets have been prophesying all throughout the history of Israel that's been recorded in these first books. So a lot of these things were happening at the same time. But as far as recorded history goes, what we have here today in Nehemiah 13 is the last recorded history before Jesus. Before that 400 year period of silence. And so this is an important passage that we'll look to this morning. The, the people, as we've seen continue to read God's Word. They continue to learn His commandments and to obey them as they find them. And those first three verses in chapter 13 just show us another example of that. It says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. And so it was when they heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. So this is the pattern that we've been seeing since chapter 8. The people are gathering to hear the word of God read and taught, many of them for the first time in their lives. And as they hear these things for the first time, they begin to learn things even about their own history. And as they hear God's commands, they begin adjusting their lives to meet His requirements. And that's an example for all of us. As we read God's Word, undoubtedly we're going to see things that we haven't seen before. Or things that we're hearing for the very first time. Or things maybe we've heard, but it has struck us in a fresh way and we recognize that God has given us a command. And when we hear those commands, when we see what He requires, our, our responsibility then is to adjust our lives to God's will, to God's commands. It's not, God, here's what I want to do and here's my life, now please bless it. No, it's, God, what do you require, what do you want, now help me to adjust to your desires, your will. That's what God requires of us. And so here they do that again. They find that there shouldn't be any Ammonites or Moabites in the assembly of God, especially in the temple, because of Balaam. And if you read back to Numbers 22 and the, the passages that follow, uh, Israel, after they had come out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness, on their way to the promised land, uh, instead of coming to greet them with food and water and to help them along their way, the, the Ammonites and the Moabites hired Balaam to come out because they thought he could pronounce some kind of curse on them. They were afraid of Israel. And so they hire him to come, and we won't go through that whole story now, but God ended up using that situation not to curse Israel, but to bless them. And so they've given, he's given this command that those people who would have cursed Israel aren't allowed to be in the assembly of worshipers. And so when they heard it, what did they do? Well, they just separated. They, they separated themselves. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. Now, it would be nice to think that this is how the story ends. That the people hear the word of God day after day, week after week. They're being taught. They hear what God requires and they obey him. 
The end. Wouldn't that be nice? Unfortunately, Israel demonstrates this human problem, not just an Israel problem, but a human problem of drifting away from God. These are the last events recorded in the Old Testament, and they look just like the events that have been happening for centuries prior. A pattern of following God, doing what He wants, and then drifting away into rebellion and sin, getting yourself into trouble, and then asking God to save you and pull you out again. That cycle continues itself over and over again. But it's not just their problem. It shows yet again the human race's need for a Savior that's given to us in the New Testament, namely Jesus. Now, Nehemiah had gone back to the king. He had left uh, Jerusalem for a time to go back to Artaxerxes just as he had originally agreed. You remember in the beginning of the book when he was coming to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, he asked him, he said, how long are you going to be gone? So they, I'm sure, worked out a time and Nehemiah went back. And while he was gone, the, the leaders did not continue in the Lord's ways. And the people began to drift from God. We see one example of this from Eliashib the priest in verse 4. He says, Eliashib the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. You remember Tobiah. He hated Israel. He hated the work they were doing in Jerusalem. And Eliashib prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, frankincense, articles, tithes of grain, new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and the gatekeepers, the offerings for the priests. We saw just last week how that the people were bringing their offerings and they were being stored up for the work of God, to provide for the work of God. But now, Eliashib has come along, he's emptied that room of the things that are supposed to be in there in the house of God, and he's letting an enemy of God's people come in and live there. Verse 6 says, during all this, Nehemiah says, I was not in Jerusalem. Verse 7, I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing him a room. And it grieved me, verse 8, bitterly. Therefore I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. And I commanded them to cleanse the rooms. And I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Now, this reminds me of another passage that we see in the New Testament. Nehemiah is not the only person to ever throw furniture out of a room. You remember Jesus going into the temple, going into the house of God and seeing how it had been defiled by those who were buying and selling in his house. And what he do? He took a whip, drove the animals out, flipped the tables over. And you know, sometimes I'm afraid I overreact when I see people doing things that displease God. But then I think about Jesus and I think about Nehemiah and I think, no, I'm just fine. We're doing okay. I haven't turned over any tables or pews or thrown the pulpit off the platform or anything yet. Y'all hold tight. We might get there one day. Just kidding. Uh, but that's, that's how he reacted. He cast everything out. Tobiah wasn't there when he came. Probably a good thing. Uh, and then he commands them to clean the room. So in such a short time, Nehemiah hasn't been gone all that long. We don't know exactly how long. But in such a short time, the people have drifted from God and they've broken the promises that they had just made that we saw back in chapters 8 and 9. They made these promises to God. We're going to keep the Sabbath. We're going to take care of the, the work of God in the temple. We're not going to marry in with the pagans. We're going to do all this. And then Nehemiah's gone for a little while and they break all the promises. And that's what we see throughout the chapter. Here's three ways they do that. One, they had broke their promise to support the Lord's work. Verse 10 says that I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. 
For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So what had happened is they see that Eliashib's not keeping the stuff in the storeroom anyway. So they quit bringing their tithes. They quit bringing their gifts and the supplies for the worship of God. And now the Levites and the priests and those who are supposed to be doing the work of God in the temple, they've had to go back to work in the fields. They've had to get another job because they can't afford to do the work of God. And we won't harp on that too much, but it takes the people of God giving to the work of God so that those who have been called to the ministry can do the work that God's called them to do. If you want the church to be able to do the things God has called the church to do, you have to be faithful to give to the church. But they broke that promise. They broke that promise. Verse 11, he says, So I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them and set them uh, together in, in their place. Verse 12 says, Then all Judah brought the tithe and the grain, the new wine and the oil of the storehouse. So then he does this in verse 13, after Elisha has, has proven himself unfaithful. Verse 14, 13 says, I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse. And he names these people. And at the end he says, For they were considered faithful. And their task was to distribute to their brethren. So he sets things back in place. He sees they've broken their promise to support the Lord's work. He sets them in their place, puts faithful leaders over them who would, who would distribute the uh, supplies as needed. The second promise they broke was that to keep the Sabbath. Verse 15 says, In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. And not only were they selling and buying among themselves, but in verse 16 says, Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. So he contends with them, verse 17, and he says, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Haven't you learned your lesson? Verse 18, Did not your fathers do thus, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and this city, yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? This is what got them in trouble in the first place. Disobeying God's command, not keeping the Sabbath, that's how they ended up in captivity to start with. And now God has brought them back into their land. They've rebuilt the walls. The city is being established. The temple is rebuilt. Worship is going on. And they start disobeying in the same ways all over again. He says, don't you guys remember? And that's our human problem, right? To forget the things that we've done in the past and how God has delivered us from that. And we go right back into it. We drift. We drift back into sin. The same old stuff over and over and over again. So we can read there in verse 19 through Uh, 22, how he uh, had set uh, the gates and locked them and and posted guards so that those people from Tyre couldn't come in and sell and buy and trade on the Sabbath day again. And uh, verse 22 says, Then I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. So they've broken the promise, one, to support the Lord's work. They've broken their promise, two, to keep the Sabbath. And then they've broken their promise, thirdly, to refuse marriage with pagans. Verse 23 says, In those days I also saw Jews who had married men of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. 
So they'd made this promise, we're not going to marry the pagans of the surrounding areas. Again, this wasn't an ethnic issue, it was a worship issue. They don't worship the true God, they're worshiping false gods. And if you let your kids marry them and you bring their daughters in to marry your kids, you're going to end up worshiping the same gods. They said, okay, we won't do that, we promise. We won't give our daughters to marry their sons and we won't take their daughters to marry our sons. But here, they've done it. And now it's to the point that their kids don't even know the language of their hometown. They can't talk like God's people. And there's just basic application there we've talked about again and again about training your children who to date and who to marry. Christians should marry Christians. And if you allow them to spend time and to, to have those kinds of relationships with people who aren't Christians, guess what? Eventually, they're not going to act like Christians anymore. Don't be surprised when their language doesn't match the language of God's people. We have that responsibility as parents and grandparents and to keep those things ourselves. Verse 25, he says, I contended with them. Listen, this, y'all can't ever say I ever overreacted to anything. I, I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons and your wives. So he's smacking people in the head and pulling their hair. Guys, what are you thinking? I mean, he's just a grumpy old man at this point. But he loves God and he loves God's people and he wants them to do what's right. He says in verse 26, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? This is why it's good to know your history. Their king, one of their, their best kings, most God-honoring kings, fell because he couldn't keep his eyes off women. He says, if Solomon, the king, fell in such a way, how much more should you guard yourself? Verse 27, should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And then one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, we know what kind of guy Eliashib is at this point, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Sanballat was right in there tight with Tobiah, remember? Hating Israel, hating the work of God. And now the, the son of the priest has married the daughter of their enemy. Therefore I drove him from me, Nehemiah says. So we see that Israel has this problem of drifting from God. They made these promises, but they couldn't keep them. All the things they said they wouldn't do, all the ways they said they would honor God, they have drifted from it and they're right back into sin, the same sins that caused them to go into exile in the first place. In our flesh today, I'm not just talking about centuries ago in Israel, I'm talking about in our flesh today, it is our nature to drift from God. It's our natural disposition to drift away from the commandments of God. No matter how strong your commitment may be one day, no matter how many promises you make, it is in your fleshly nature to drift away from God. Kelby and I went uh, on a, a trip for our 10th anniversary just a few weeks ago, and uh, we, we decided one day was going to be a beach day with no kids, right? We, we're going to sit down, and we're going to take a book, and it's going to be relaxing and great. And you know what you do when you go to the beach without your kids? You end up watching and making sure everybody else's kids are fine. And so this lady comes, comes and, and throws her towel down next to us, and I'm assuming a granddaughter was with her. Um, she might have been, I don't know, eight, nine, ten years old at the most. 
and uh, she's just wearing this bright orange bathing suit. You can't, you can't miss her. And so the, the little girl goes to play in the water. The grandma lays down and falls asleep. And the girl's just playing knee-deep in the water. And we go to our reading and just enjoying our relaxing day at the beach. And, and, and at a moment, I look up and I think, I don't see that little girl. And then so I kind of nudged Kelby and I said, do you see that little girl that was just right here? No, no, I don't see her. So we're looking and trying to figure out where this girl has gone. And finally, we notice, I mean, at least 100 yards down the beach, she is still just playing in the water, has no idea that she's drifted that far away from her grandmother. Now, finally, the grandmother realized she was gone and she went out looking for the girl and everybody was fine. And we made sure to keep a better eye on her after that, uh, you know, not being her parents at all. But that's how easy it is to drift, Right. If you're not paying attention to where you are and that fixed point of where you're supposed to be, naturally you're going to find yourself drifting down the coast. And that's how it is with our relationship with God, right? If we don't keep our eyes on Jesus, if we don't keep our focus where it's supposed to be, by nature, we're just going to gradually drift and you won't even know it. You're just playing, having a good time. And next thing you know, you're lost. You don't know where you are, how you got there. Paul talked about it this way in Romans 7. He said, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Do you ever feel that way? He said in in verse 18 there, he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Say that with me, okay? In your flesh, nothing good dwells. Not even a little bit. In my flesh, in your flesh, the scriptures say, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. That's a mouthful. And we all have those moments where we have this commitment, this want to. We want to serve God, we want to please God, we want to do what's right, but we find ourselves so easily drifting right back into our sin. And if you're really a Christian, you hate that. And you fight against that. But that's our nature. It's the nature of our flesh. That's why none of us can be saved by our good works. He he said in Romans 3, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, that is by doing the good things that God commands, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. By simply trying to do good, And to work your way to God and to please Him and to find favor with Him, to tip the balance in your favor. You cannot be justified. Your good works are never good enough because your nature is that of a sinner. And no matter how much good you feel like you do, it'll always be that you've sinned and you've displeased God. You've broken His law and you deserve punishment. That's the nature of our sin. That's who we are in the flesh. We drift from God. But he said this in 2 Corinthians. He said that God made him who knew no sin. That's Jesus, right? Jesus lived his life completely sinless. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And what does that mean? That is, that the the ways that we could never live before God, the way that we could never earn His favor, Jesus did. 
Jesus never lost favor with the Father. He was perfect and holy and sinless and righteous in everything. Tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin, the scripture says. And this Jesus, who was sinless perfection and did not deserve to die, laid down his life willingly. And what does he mean? That he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That is, when Jesus died on the cross, when he was crucified, God took the sin that is yours and mine and all the punishment and the wrath that we deserve and he placed it on Jesus. It's like a banking transaction. We've got all this sin and unrighteousness in our account and God transfers it into Jesus' account. And he pays the punishment. He pays the penalty for our sin. And that's great. That's good news. But more than that, he doesn't stop with just transferring our sin to Jesus, but he takes it a step further. And when we become children of God, when we put our trust in Jesus alone, he takes Jesus's righteousness, Jesus's goodness, all that favor that he has with the father. And he transfers that into your account. He simply requires of us that we repent and put our trust in Jesus. We throw up our hands and say, there's no good that I could ever do to earn God's favor. There's no way I could ever be saved in my own doing. It's all because of Jesus. And he takes our sin, puts it in Jesus' account, takes Jesus' righteousness, and puts it in our account. It's that easy. It's free. You do nothing to earn it. It's the gift of God. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, Paul says. That's the gospel. Even Nehemiah recognized God's need, or his need for God's mercy. There in 20, verse 22, the second half, after he's, he's making these changes in, in, in Jerusalem, he says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. He doesn't say spare me or spare us because of all the good things we do. Guess what? They didn't have good things. They kept drifting into sin. He says, spare me according to your mercy. And friend, if you will be saved, if you will have your sins forgiven, if you will have a home in heaven, that is the only way you'll ever receive it is by God's mercy. It's a gift of his grace. But the reality is, even under the mercy of God, they still needed renewal. Nehemiah corrected their actions. We see how he did that in ways maybe that we wouldn't. But he also knew that the faithfulness and the purity of those who served and led was essential. See, the change they needed wasn't just to start doing the right practices, but they needed to be purified. They needed to be cleansed. You look there at verse 13. He says, I appointed these treasurers who were considered faithful. Verse 22, he says, I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves. Verse 30, he says, thus I cleansed them from everything pagan. What we need is not just to do right things. We need cleansing. We need to be purified, washed, and made clean. We need renewal. You see, let me speak to you Christians for a moment. When we receive the grace of God and we recognize that freedom that we have in Christ and we know that we've been forgiven, there's a couple of dangers that present themselves at that point. 
On the one side of the road, you've got legalism. And that is, okay, God has forgiven me. He's made me my child. I better get my act together and do it right so he'll still like me. And on the other side of the road, you've got not legalism, but laziness. And that's the person who says, no, I don't have to do all this stuff. I'm free in Christ. I've got forgiveness. I don't have to do anything now. He just loves me. It doesn't matter what I do. And those are the ditches on each side of the road to either take up and say, oh, i got to get this right, or to say, no, I ain't got to do nothing. Now, I don't know which one you're uh, prone to. Now, I fluctuate. There are seasons when I feel like, oh, i got to get this right and do it all exactly like he said, or he's not going to like me anymore. And then I have seasons where, man, Jesus loves me. I'm good. And most likely you're the same way. You fluctuate back and forth between those two things. But here's what Paul says according to, to answer those dangers. First to legalism in Galatians 3. He told them, he said, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Here's my question, Paul says. Did you receive the Spirit? That is, were you born again? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Well, we know the answer is we received it by faith. Because works of the law could never save us. So here's his next question. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? You think that God would save you by grace through faith in Him and give you the Holy Spirit and then kick you to the curb and say, you're on your own, you better get it right? In the strength of your flesh? I hope something inside you screams out and says, of course not. So if legalism is your temptation to say, we got to keep all the rules and maybe add some rules that Jesus didn't even command just to make sure we don't break the rules he did. You know, we got to get this right. If that's your tendency, remember this. Do you think that if he saved you by faith, by the Holy Spirit, that he's going to make you live the Christian life without faith in the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. The same faith that, that saved you is the faith that will keep you and cleanse you and make you more like Jesus till the day you see him. Face to face. And to those of you who may lean the other way and say, you know what, I got grace, I got love, I've got forgiveness, I'm good, it doesn't matter what I do. Paul says this in Romans 12. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, we love the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That is to say, yes, we have been saved by God. We have received the Holy Spirit and we continue to live the life by faith. But there are very practical steps that you can take to maintain your holiness and to please God with your life. You don't just get to throw your hands in the air and say, there's nothing I have to do to keep on going. To be saved, yes, we must simply put our trust in Jesus. That is by grace alone, through faith alone. It is completely a work of God apart from any effort or any merit on our part. That's how we become Christians. But to be renewed, 
to go on living this Christian life in a way that is pleasing to God. We depend on the work of the Holy Spirit as we commit ourselves again and again to obey what God has commanded. Yes, we must obey. We must keep his commandments, but we do it as we depend on and rest in the strength of the Holy Spirit he's given us. Does that make sense? You got to do, but you don't do it on your own. You got to do, but you do it resting in that grace, resting in the strength of the Holy Spirit that he's given you. Let me just give you some very practical, basic things before we leave, some things you can consider. Three basic things that I think must be present in the life of a healthy Christian. Oh, there's more than this. There's plenty more, but here's just three basic ones. Ready? Write these down. The word, prayer, and proclamation. The Word, that's your Bible. You need a steady diet of the Word of God. Prayer, you need to talk to God. Have that conversation ongoing with Him. You bring to Him your needs and your requests. You hear from Him in His Word and by the Holy Spirit. And you just commune with God. And proclamation. Where you take what God has given you and you tell it to someone else. And sharing the gospel and making disciples. Those are three basic things that every healthy Christian needs to have in their life. Basic steps you can take. And I think they work themselves out best in, in, in three levels. One, you've got the congregational level, right? You, you gather here weekly, regularly, faithfully. Can I throw another ad adverb in there? Consistently. Like I, got, I can come up with some more if you want. Come to church is what I'm getting at. So you can hear the word of God preached and read and taught. You need the word in the context of the congregation. You pray here, right? Well, you should. Don't depend on the guy in the front. When you hear prayers voiced from this pulpit, whether it's me or somebody else here, you listen to these prayers and those things that you agree with that you're going to pray also, you, you say amen out loud or in your heart or however you want to do it. You pray alongside those who are praying publicly. And proclamation. Now, I'm the one who's got a microphone. You don't. That's a good thing. How do you proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection in the context of the congregation? Well, we have our ordinances. We baptize new believers showing that we've died to sin and made alive to God. We take the Lord's Supper. And what did Jesus say? He said, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do what? You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So in the context of the congregation, you get the word, you get the prayer, you pray and you proclaim in those ways. Now there's another level to that and that happens in a small group setting. And we can see this in the practice of the church throughout history. We see it in the practice of the New Testament. They weren't just totally dependent on the whole big congregational gathering of the church. Even in Nehemiah here, after Ezra read the, law, the word of God to the whole congregation, the Levites and the priests started gathering with people in, in smaller contexts to teach them the word. How do we do that here? Sunday school and small groups, discipleship groups. You need to get together and have relationships with other Christians so that when you come, you experience the word, prayer, and proclamation. You hear the word taught and discussed. You participate in that. You pray for one another and, and, and share your requests and your burdens with other Christians. You proclaim the word of God. You proclaim the gospel and encourage each other. And then as a group, sometimes even go out and 
Minister in the community and proclaim the gospel out there together. You need a small group of Christians to live with. And then that third level is is personal, private. You alone. You need the word and prayer and proclamation just between you and God. You need the word every single day of your life. Some of y'all just need to go home today, look at your calendar, grab your alarm on your phone, and just set a time that you're going to get up on Monday morning and you're going to go to God's Word. It's that simple. You need God's Word every day. You Listen, the, I get up in the morning and I hear from a couple little boys first thing. I love those boys, but I don't want their voices to be the first one I hear. Before I hear from my wife, before I hear from my sons, I need to hear from God. So I get up before them and open my Bible. And you need to do the same thing. You need the Word of God. You need prayer. You need time on your knees. Maybe you do read your Bible, but you don't take time to talk back to God. Carve out time for that. Back that alarm up 15, 20, 30 minutes, maybe an hour, whatever you need to spend time with God in prayer. And you, personally, individually, need to be proclaiming what He's given to you to others. You need to find opportunities and find people who are lost and need to hear the gospel so you can tell them the good news about Jesus. These are just basic things that we need in our lives. But listen, we don't do this on our own. We do this in the strength and in the power of the Holy Spirit whom God has given us. He's given us His Spirit. Jesus has died for us. We don't do it to earn God's favor. We do it because we have His favor and we're free. Why wouldn't we want to spend time with him? Why wouldn't we want to tell other people about him? And if there's no desire for that at all in your life, it may just be because you don't know him and you've never been born again. And so if that's where you are, if you've just not been saved, friend, you need to repent of your sins and you need to put your trust in Jesus alone today. Just throw up your hands and say, my good deeds aren't good enough. And you fall at the mercy of Jesus because he offers it freely. Would you stand as we pray? Father, I thank you for your word, for the bearing that it has on our lives. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move our hearts to love you and to worship you and to obey you. For those who are in bondage to sin, who are living according to the flesh and headed for destruction, Lord, I pray that you would deliver them, free them by the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead and he offers new life. And Lord, I pray for the Christian maybe who has experienced your grace and has been saved but is living in that bondage, that fear of, oh, I got to do it all right to make sure that God still likes me, to make sure I can keep this relationship going. I got to get it right. Lord, free them from that. Show them again your grace. Renew them in that way. And Lord, I pray for the Christians who've gotten lazy. Yes, they've experienced your grace and forgiveness, and they use that as an opportunity or an excuse to just not obey you. Lord, deliver them from that. Because we are being continually pulled away by the world and our own flesh, we have to be continually renewed by you, O God, in our spirits. 
And so I pray that you would renew your people today in whatever way they need it and save those who are lost. In Jesus' name, amen.